0: 1660. The brother of the king, and second in line to the French throne, makes his entrance to an extravagant ball in the world's most spectacular royal palace. All of the lavishly attired guests wait in anticipation. And there, flanked by the exquisitely carved doors, he appears. He's in a sumptuous silk ball gown, dark ringlets cascading down his bare shoulders his cheeks and lips rouged and his teeth gleaming in a dazzling smile. He looks beautiful and he's on the arm of a dashing courtier. Do the bejewelled ladies and upstanding gentlemen gasp in shock? Does the king stare overcome with horror? Do the boys and girls snigger and whisper? No, for this is no major scandal by the standards of the day, because this is Philippe I, Duke of Orléans, brother to King Louis XIV. He's a largely forgotten, but nonetheless fabulous historical figure, and one whose complexities can teach us a lot about our society's perceptions of masculinity today. Welcome to The Timely Historian, with me, your host, Simone. Episode 2, A Sibling Rivalry for the Ages. In 1640, Philippe was the second son of the French King Louis XIII and Anne of Austria. His older brother, Louis, had been born two years earlier, and because Louis was his parents' first surviving child after 23 years of marriage, he was considered a miraculous gift from God. Louis was the longed-for precious heir, and that left Philippe as just the backup brother. Louis acceded to the throne aged just four and presided over his opulent court at Versailles for 72 years. He was revered as the Sun King. He remains to this day the shining example of European absolute monarchy. Philippe, though, known as Le Petit Monsieur and later as Just Monsieur, occupied a much more ambiguous role and one which he struggled to fulfil for his entire life. Though he towered above all of the people of France, he had always to kneel before the king. The brothers' childhood was spent in the midst of the Fronde, a series of civil wars during which the royal family found themselves in real and grave danger. Their mother and her chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, were acutely aware of how catastrophic regal infighting could be and were concerned that sibling rivalry would eventually bring about the self-destruction of the monarchy and the ruination of France. So Philippe, a bright and vivacious child, was purposefully brought up so as to pose no threat to his brother. For much of his childhood his mother dressed him in ribbons and frocks and referred to him as my little girl. While Louis was educated to govern and defend a realm, Philippe was taught to dance, read, fence and ride and he was always taught his place. He was the second man of France, the cloud to Louis's son. Philippe was naturally flamboyant and showed an early affinity for fashion, pomp and ceremony. His effeminacy was encouraged by his guardians, keen to prevent him from aspiring to seize his brother's crown. During his adolescence, Philippe's homosexuality also became well-defined and common knowledge and court gossip linked him to a string of handsome young men. This was not to say that Philippe was unwilling himself, or deemed incapable by others, of doing his princely duty and marrying in order to strengthen France's overseas alliances and produce the next generation of the Bourbon dynasty. Louis was careful to keep his brother financially dependent on the crown, and at the age of 20, Philippe was married off to Henriette, the sister of King Charles II of England. She was a beautiful and charming socialite, and the couple went on to have two daughters. But it was a stormy and perhaps loveless marriage, and Philippe was humiliated when rumours abounded that Henriette was having an affair with, amongst others, his own brother. Yet, as always, Philippe was forced to submit to the king's will. After Henriette's sudden death at the age of 26, Louis arranged for his brother's politically useful second marriage to Princess Palatine Elizabeth Charlotte. She was a more down-to-earth character who avoided courtly scheming, and she bore Monsieur three more children. Philippe's marriages did not, however, prevent him from conducting affairs with several male lovers too, most notably the Chevalier of Lorraine, an attractive, intelligent and unscrupulous man with whom Philippe had a notoriously tempestuous relationship. They were enveloped in high drama, glamorous parties, jealous rages and treacherous betrayals. They were, however, the loves of one another's lives and Monsieur's passionate romance with the Chevalier endured for more than 40 years. His sexuality was no obstacle to Philippe being recognised for his military prowess. As a young man, He had been keen to prove himself on the battlefield and by his late 20s had been appointed to the rank of Lieutenant-General. In 1677 he won a glorious victory against the Prince of Orange and future King of England, William, at the Battle of Cassel. But he was dismayed to find that his brilliant success and burgeoning popularity only infuriated Louis, who never again allowed Monsieur to fight in a military campaign fear of being eclipsed by his younger brother. Philippe returned to live with his wife, his lover, and in the shadow of Louis XIV. He turned his attention to renovating his estate, conducting the affairs of children and grandchildren, patronising the arts and gambling. His was a life of material pleasure, but internal exasperation. In June 1701, After yet another furious dispute with Louis, Monsieur suffered a fatal stroke and died in the arms of his son. He was laid to rest in the Basilica of Saint-Denis, but his gravesite was destroyed during the French Revolution, and over the centuries his memory too has become largely lost to history. So why should Philippe matter to us today? He was a man of contradictions, a menacing threat to the monarch and yet an unwaveringly loyal brother, an effeminate courtier and yet warmongering commander, a promiscuous lover and yet a devoted partner. Above all, he demonstrates how broad the definition of masculinity can be and has been in the past. Think back to the picture I painted at the beginning. How would we react if, say, a respected male politician or footballer attended a party in Philippe's get-up today? Why are young men today made to feel that to be emotionally expressive suggests weakness when the tantrum-throwing Philippe was considered the most formidable threat to a king? Why is the acceptance of openly gay or transgender members of the armed forces controversial today when Philippe's homosexuality had no bearing on his status as a fearsome military hero. So many of the attitudes about gender, which we consider long-standing and traditional, are in reality undeniably recent inventions. So if masculinity is a concept which has constantly shape-shifted through history, what's stopping us from redefining it for our own world today? Spotlight on Sources. This episode was inspired by the Canal Plus TV series Versailles, which was first shown in the UK in 2016. Although not always factually accurate, I loved the depictions of the lavish Palace of Versailles, the political machinations, and the courtly intrigue of 17th century France. The show explores the fraught relationship between Louis and Philippe particularly well and Welsh actor Alexander Vlahos's interpretation of Monsieur inspired me to explore further and make this podcast. I highly recommend especially season one, though please note that it's rated 15. There are some great sources dedicated to these historical figures. Take a look at the show notes for more information on the ones I found most helpful. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please consider subscribing, sharing or leaving a review. You can also let me know your thoughts on Instagram. I'm at the Timely Historian. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.